Hello, this is Millie Long, uh, one of your co-hosts of IBD Drive Time. And along with uh, Ray Cross from University of Maryland, uh, we would like to welcome our guest today. We are excited to welcome Dr. Jeremy Adler, Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at University of Michigan in their IBD Center. So Jeremy, welcome to IBD Drive Time. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to join you. Well, we're excited to really learn about the pediatrics perspective from you. You know, a lot of our listeners, I think, are adult gastroenterologists, but there's so much to learn as we think about this continuum of care for our IBD patients. You know, one of the first questions I had for you, which I think is actually really important, is a, a recent abstract that you presented at the Advances in IBD meeting. This was entitled Changing Use of Biologic Medications and Associated Outcomes for Pediatric IBD. And importantly, it was awarded the uh, best of uh, 2022 AIBD abstract in pediatrics. And so uh, can you summarize uh, this study and what you think our listeners um, can take from it? Thanks for asking. And our group is honored to uh, receive the poster award. The history behind this abstract is there's been a lot of changes in how we take care of patients with inflammatory bowel disease over the years. And we really wanted to see how those changes uh, relate to outcomes. We and a number of our colleagues are members of the Improved Care Now Network. This is a big multi-center quality improvement collaborative. And the, the network has a registry with uh, data on tens of thousands of kids with inflammatory bowel disease. We use the data from the registry and it, it included 93 centers and over 4,000 children because we specifically focused on the kids with Crohn's disease who were enrolled in the registry soon after diagnosis. And what we did is we looked at the trends in medication use and specifically the trends in when uh, biologic drugs were used um, and the outcomes. Uh, and the outcomes that are easiest to measure in this registry are fistula, strictures, perianal disease. So those were the outcomes that we looked at. We looked at data from 2010 through the end of 2019, so a full decade worth of data. And in those 4,000 kids over the years, what we saw is increasing use of biologics. And here we're talking primarily about the anti-TNF medications, increasing use of biologics and using them earlier. So we found that overall, at the beginning of the study, about 52% of kids were started on an anti-TNF medication. And by the end of the study, by the end of 2019, it, that was up to 76%. And the time from diagnosis to the start of the anti-TNF meds went down from about three years uh, at the start of this study down to about 54 days. So a little under two months from diagnosis to the start of the first biologic drug, which is huge change. Uh, and it reflects a change across the United States at, at multiple practices. And what we saw in that same time period is the uh, rate of complications went down. Uh, overall, the rate of all of those disease complications, structuring, penetrating, perianal complications, at the beginning of the study was 24% of patients had developed uh, at least one of those complications. And by the end of the study, it was down to 10%. This was across the board for all populations, um, including some of the populations we know have higher rates uh, of these complications, such as uh, African-Americans, Asian patients, and, and adolescents. You know, I find this to be so important because I think we can learn from this in the adult population as well, that earlier treatment to control disease and inflammation may actually help us to prevent progression of disease, regardless of age, whether pediatric or adult patient. In practice, you know, I've obviously been in practice well too, and I remember 10, 15 years ago, it, of course it's all about steroid sparing, but it was much more about um, using enteral nutrition to induce response and medications like methotrexate to maintain. 
Have, have these practice patterns um, really changed? It sounds like they have. Yeah, it really has. So uh, pediatrics um, has, uh, as a field, has really tried hard to avoid steroids for a long time. And different groups have taken different approaches. There's some groups uh, that use a lot more enteral nutritional therapy um, than others. Uh, but across the board, even the groups that use enteral nutritional therapy, uh, even those groups are, are using more and more biologics over time. So we, we are seeing this across the entire uh, pediatric field. No, it's great. And many lessons to be learned um, from an adult uh, perspective. You know, one of your other research interests that I know our listeners will be interested in um, is kind of the idea of quantifying inflammatory burden seen endoscopically and radiographically. Uh, for endoscopy, there are a number of validated indices, but they all have some issues associated with them. But I'd love to hear you tell us a little bit more about the new endoscopy scoring system for Crohn's disease that you've been working on. Yeah, thank you. So um, we developed a score, endoscopy score for Crohn's disease called the Simplified Endoscopic Mucosal Assessment of Crohn's disease, the CMSCD. And this came about really because of the need for a score that clinicians can use. This was in the Improved Care Now uh, network. We were preparing to launch a clinical trial, a randomized uh, comparative effectiveness uh, study called the Combined. And this was a pragmatic study that uh, regular clinicians were going to be recruiting patients for it and, and collecting data for it. And so we were looking for a way to um, evaluate mucosal activity um, that was uh, simpler for clinicians to use because the SCSCD and the uh, CDEIS, the two really main validated scores for uh, Crohn's disease, were both developed as research tools and they're both really cumbersome and, and a lot or possibly most clinicians just don't use them in practice. So we developed this tool as a very simple tool. You just um, score the ileum from normal to severe with one number, and you score the colon from normal to severe with one number, and then count the number of segments of colon that are, that are involved, and that's the whole score. But you can't just make up a score. We then had to study it and see if it worked. And so we uh, studied this with uh, videos of colonoscopy scored by uh, uh, blinded central readers and compared it to SCSCD um, in a, a reasonably small pediatric population and it worked, which was exciting because this was a tool that regular docs could use. The next step was, uh, was to validate this in a, in a proper larger study. And, and that's the study that was most recently published where we took videos of colonoscopies um, from clinical trials, one, one set of videos from a pediatric trial, one set of videos from an adult trial. Uh, these were ustekinumab trials. And we had central readers who were blinded to all the clinical information score the videos. Um, and these were adult gastroenterologists who are experienced central readers. And, and, and it was a wonderful study because one, the new score correlates beautifully for, with the SESCD. Two, it actually is sensitive to change. So if uh, somebody's disease got better, the score goes down. If somebody's disease got worse, the score goes up. And, and I think the third feature of this, which was really nice, is everyone agreed, the, the, the central readers as well, that this was just an easy score to use. Uh, so I hope that this score both makes it easier for us as clinicians to, to have a, a, a kind of a common language of recording uh, how severe endoscopic findings are, but also this can now be used as a research tool. And then, oh, I think it's fantastic. And th there's an added advantage that you can also use the tool retrospectively. Is that right from reports? Yeah, that's exactly right. We did uh, a third study where we had uh, central readers 
score the text of colonoscopy reports and then compare that to scores of the videos of the colonoscopy reports. We had some of them scored with pictures and some of them scored without pictures with just text and it worked for both of them. The pictures probably aren't even necessary. And, and actually it, it uh, worked better than I expected uh, from the text of colonoscopy reports. You now can score the severity of endoscopic findings. So we're using that in a, in a, in a study currently, which is great for pragmatic uh, clinical research because now now we can, you know, have that gold standard of mucosal healing uh, in uh, uh, clinical studies that we didn't previously. Oh, what a great advancement for the field. And I look forward to having that simpler score at my fingertips in practice. You are our first pediatrics-focused podcast, and we're thrilled to have you on. So I'd love to pick your brain and have you tell us what you think that kind of in the last several years the top three advances have been um, in pediatrics. And obviously that impacts us as adult gastroenterologists as well. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to, and honored to be the first uh, a pediatric topic uh, for, uh, for, the, for the podcast. Um, there's so many advances in the recent years uh, that it's actually hard to pick my favorite, but I'd say the top few would be the availability of more uh, advanced therapies, biologics and small molecule therapies. Because you know we all have patients where you know the first uh, choice medicine doesn't work, and and uh, um, it's really nice to have access to to more more treatment options uh, to improve outcomes and avoid steroids. And you know the anti-TNF drugs, even though they're not you new, they've been around for twenty five years now. But um, the anti-TNF drugs are still the, the our go to medicines. They're the ones where we actually have data that improve they improve growth. For children with inflammatory bowel disease, um, and there's some data that they can help prevent disease-related complications. So I think for long-term outcomes, that uh, it's great to have these medicines that you know we didn't have when we we first started practicing. Along the lines with that is the therapeutic drug monitoring. I know. I think our societies all pretty much agree that uh, monitoring during induction is important, but uh, where maybe we differ is uh, proactive therapeutic drug monitoring. I, I, I understand that data is not really there to support that in the adult literature, but in pediatrics where children are growing, their metabolism is changing, they're going through puberty, their doses actually do change and should change as they're growing. So um, we now have a few studies that show that proactive therapeutic drug monitoring in, in children really does improve outcomes. So it, it, those are two really, um, I think, helpful things, or maybe that's one thing. And, and I think the second thing is, is quality improvement. Uh, the Improved Care Now Network is a wonderful resource to help improve care through QI methods, but through collaboration, all, all of us working together. Um, and also it's a nice source of data for research. And if I could add one more, I would say the very early onset IBD, the VEO IBD. These are the children who are diagnosed under age six years. They're much more likely to have monogenic disease. They're much more likely to have immune defects that, I mean, either are the source of the IBD or are mimickers of IBD, depending on your perspective. But in the last few years, that field has exploded. And we know so much more now about the genetics and immunology of those, con those uh, conditions. And it's actually in a real way helped for some of the kids get better targeted therapies at, at their particular immune defect. We have a long way to go. There's still a lot we don't know. I, I forget the exact statistics, but maybe we find it an identifiable uh, a mutation in 10 or 15% of these kids. But that's 10 or 15% that we didn't know what to do with just a few years ago. So it, it's, it's really, a, that's an exciting uh, area of advancement. 
great to be able to better understand and, and better have options for that difficult to treat group. Um, no, those are wonderful um, components that I think really have changed and have you know, influenced us as adult gastroenterologists as well. I will say, um, you know, uh, while of course there are differences in data surrounding therapeutic drug monitoring in adults and, and kids, I will say that part of that may have to do with practice patterns in adults. Uh, you know, I, for example, use a lot more combination therapy up front with a thiopurine or, you know, methotrexate to help to reduce immunogenicity. But I agree with you wholeheartedly, and especially in a field where more monotherapy of TNF is utilized, such as in pediatrics, absolutely um, drug level checking would be imperative uh, in that group uh, to optimize and prevent those low levels and the increased immunogenicity. So, you know, I think we're, we're continuing to learn a lot about how to optimize TNFs in both the pediatric and adult populations. And we completely agree with you that even in the adult world, we have the best data with TNFs in terms of really modifying disease course and preventing these complications. So they're still very relevant, even in the setting of all of these novel therapeutics. So let me ask you one last question before I get to my favorite question. Um, the, the last clinical question I'll ask you has to do with kind of transitioning patients from pediatric to adult providers. I think probably we have a mixture of providers listening, potentially more adult. And what can, you know, some simple things that both the pediatrics and the adult provider can do to help to make that uh, transition uh, successful? Yeah, that's such an important topic because uh, all of our patients grow up and become your patients, or at least they should. Um, so uh, from the pediatric side, I, I think this process of uh, preparing people for transitioning to the adult world really begins, or at least should begin early on. And we think of this in terms of allocation of responsibility. And I'll, I'll give credit to my colleague, uh, a pediatric psychologist, uh, em Emily Fredericks, for, I think she coined that term. If not, she at least taught it to me. Think of it this way, you know, when kids are little, the parent is running the show as far as healthcare goes, and the kids are, 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 are there going along. And over time, the child grows up and needs to learn how to take care of their own health. And there should be some shifting of that allocation of responsibility so that by the time the um, kid, young adult moves on to the adult world, they should be in charge of their health care and the parent may be there, maybe, but is along for the ride. And that takes time. There are lots of opportunities along the way for education so that the kid learns about their disease, learns about their medications, and, and especially learns how to be proactive with, the, with their own healthcare, learns how to refill their medications, learns how to ask questions, because a lot of times that's, that's uh, that's something that many people struggle with is speaking up and advocating for themselves. I think that's on the pediatric side, the, the way we focus on preparing kids for transition. I think the next step is the handoff itself. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't always work out that kids are going to transfer from the pediatric practice in, their, in the same institution to the adult practice where we all have shared. Right. Them. No, often it's not. I see many yeah. of your patients and, you know, uh, people move around the country. Yeah, go to college somewhere else, move somewhere else, uh, or even within each of our states, there are more adult practices than pediatric practices. So sometimes people just simply find a, an adult doc closer to home than the pediatric practice they have to travel to go to. So I think that handoff is really important. Uh, you know, detailed notes summarizing the disease course, and ideally we can, we should talk with each other, but at the very least have a good, have some form of communication about uh, what are the active issues, what are the issues that need to be addressed. And I should say, ideally, uh, we should do this when the patient is well and the disease is under control and stable dosing and all of that. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work that it way. It doesn't always happen like that. But no, exactly. I agree. And I think from my perspective, from the adult side, that that those 
kids as they transition up to the adult clinic really trust their pediatric provider and they're meeting us for the first time and often without their parents there. And so I think it can take some time to generate that trust. And, you know, one thing I do is I emphasize to them that if we're, if we're going to make any changes, I'm going to talk to their pediatric provider as well, make sure we're all on the same page. They have some confidence there. And I think that helps as they gain some trust in the adult system. Yeah. Trust is a really important issue. And, and on that point, um, when I know somebody's going to be moving somewhere, whether they're graduating from college or the family's moving or whatever it is, once I know where they're going, I, I usually will give them some recommendations of people I know there in the adult GI world so that, and tell them, you know, like, these are people I know, these are people I trust, and, and, and you can trust them too. Because I think that also helps to sort of uh, build confidence that, that they're going to be in good hands. No, absolutely. I just want to take a moment to remind our listeners that the IBD Drive Time uh, podcast is brought to you by Advances in IBD and by the Gastroenterology Learning Network. And that actually this spring, uh, the AIBD Regional Series will kick off uh, in March um, with an in-person event in Baltimore and their events throughout the year. So please check that schedule. So Jeremy, my last favorite question for you, which we ask all of our guests, um, and and we'll see if we can challenge you to tell us something about yourself that Ray and I don't know and our listeners may not know um, so that we can kind of learn something uh, today about you, you. Okay, something new that you don't know. Um, all right, if I can stray from the medical fields. So I played- Of course. Violin. Yeah, I, I played violin uh, when I was younger in college and med school. And uh, I had the good fortune just randomly of- getting the opportunity to play with Ray Charles when I was, when oh, I was, that is cool. yeah, I was in the university orchestra and, uh, uh, he was, uh, invited to, uh, receive an honorary doctorate there. And, and, uh, and, uh, they played a, he played a concert and we, the orchestra accompanied him. So, uh, that's my, that my is a really cool moment experience. of fame. You know, we actually have met a number of uh, musicians along the way with IBD Drive Time. So soon enough, there'll have to be an IBD Drive Time concert at one of these meetings. So uh, we'll, we'll invite you for sure. Uh, well, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us today on IBD Drive Time. We learned a lot about pediatrics, how far the field has come, some interesting new tools that we may use, and the value of quality improvement. Uh, we hope to have you back at some time in the future for our podcast. And, and thanks again for joining. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it.